The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 12, to the chief musician on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord, you shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Okay, we are in Judges 8, verses 13 through 21. Verse 13, Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle, from the ascent of Heres, and he caught a young man of the men of Sukkot and interrogated him. And he wrote down for him the leaders of Sukkot and its elders, 77 men. Then he came to the men of Sukkot and said, Here are Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Sukkot. Then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. And he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, As you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Then he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise, kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. So Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. Okay, I typed this sermon on 25 December 2023. Anybody know what 25 December is? <laughs> While you all were sleeping in and having a nice Christmas day, I was laboring over God's word for you. It has been pointed out in previous sermons that what will happen during the tribulation period in a literal sense, meaning the destruction and carnage on the planet, is only a part of the story. At the same time, there is a spiritual battle that will be waged. The timeline set by Paul in his epistles reveals the sequence of events that will take place. The rapture will occur, the Antichrist will be revealed, and after that, a peace deal will be signed that will initiate the seven years of tribulation. The timeline is clearly and unambiguously set forth in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It was alluded to in Judges 6, 1 through 10 in the opening narrative leading to Gideon as the judge of Israel. But the contents of Judges aren't focused on the literal carnage of the world to come. Rather, they are focused on the spiritual battle that Israel 
will face. Why would that be the case? The reason is that the church age is complete. The promises in the Old Testament concerning the millennium may include Gentiles who come to faith during the tribulation period, but it is Israel to whom the promises belong. Everything else that occurs during the tribulation period is to bring Israel to this understanding. That will lead to their acceptance of the gospel and to national salvation. Our text first comes from Amos 9, it is verse 15. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Israel is already back in the land. They have been planted, and they shall never again be pulled up. But their nation today is one of wickedness and unfaithfulness to the Lord. That like the wickedness throughout the earth, must be dealt with before the time of harmony promised in the prophets comes. What occurs outside of Israel, especially in what happens in the world in relation to Israel, is what is needed to bring them to the point of their anticipated conversion. Once that momentous event occurs, the Lord can personally intervene and bring about the end of the tribulation period. This is seen in Revelation 19, but it is also hinted at in Matthew 24. There, Jesus notes that there will be such great tribulation on the earth that if the days were not cut short, no flesh would be saved. However, he then says, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. The spiritual battle that occurs during this time of tribulation is what Judges continues to deal with. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so, let us turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is, my brothers, the sons of my mother. It's verses 13 through 21. Verse 13, then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Heres. To start the verses today, we come to a very complicated set of words that are widely rendered. Vayashav Gidon ben Yoash min ha milchama mi ma'ale hecheres. And returned Gideon, son Joash, from the battle, from to ascent the sun, or ascent the sun. Some translations say, before the sun was up, at the going up of the sun, from the cliff of the sun, by way of Heres Pass, down from the battle of Ares, and so forth. This is referring to what was presented in the previous sermon from last week. There it said, Now Ziba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, and their armies with them, about 15,000, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in the tents on the east of Nobah and Jogbeha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. Gideon went around the army and came at the camp in an unexpected manner. During the battle, the two kings fled. The natural way for them to flee would be east, the direction they had originally come from. Gideon pursued them, and he took them. Now, after capturing the kings, it says, from to ascent the sun. The meaning is that he turned back, meaning from the point to which he had been in pursuit of them. A little confusing, but God is doing this for a reason. He was heading in the direction of the sun's ascent, meaning the east. Eventually, he captured the kings. 
Now, to return to his land, he turned back from this direction. This appears to be a purposeful way of saying east without using that descriptor. Now, why would he do that? The reason is because the word Kadem or east also means from the beginning, aforetime. We don't want to give that perception here. And so he's using a way of describing the east without saying the east. We know that God is using typology when he does things like this. It is also notable that the full name, Gideon son of Joash, is used. The last time it was seen was in Judges 7, verse 14, at the time of the dream. There it said, Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. Since then, the name Gideon has been stated nine times. Now his full name is again stated as confirmation that the task of defeating the enemy has been completed. Joash means Jehovah has blessed. Verse 14, and he caught a young man of the men of Sukkot and interrogated him. And took youth from men Sukkot and asked him. The words seem unnecessarily detailed, but they are needed to set the framework for the next clause. That this is a na'ar or a youth may seem surprising based on the next words. Verse 14 continues, And he, meaning the youth, wrote down for him the leaders of Sukkot and its elders, 77 men. Vayetov elav et sare Sukkot ve'et zekenecha shivim ve'shiva ish, and wrote unto him princes Sukkot and her elders, 77 men. It is unknown if this youth being able to write was something unusual, you know, it's an exception to the rule, or if it was a common trait at the time. We don't know. Either way, he was able to write, and he was intelligent enough to know the names of the princes of the city as well, as well as the elders. This was a means of ensuring that none of the leadership would escape justice for refusing to assist Gideon's men with the simple provision of bread. Because of their pusillanimous refusal to help, verse 15, then he came to the men of Sukkot and said, Here are Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me. Vayavo el anshe Sukkot, vayomer hine zevach veit Zalmunna asher karaftem oti, and came unto men Sukkot and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, whom you reproached me. Presenting the kings would have been a rather shocking display. Gideon could have simply killed the two kings and left them to rot. He could have taken their heads off and brought them back. But that would leave the question open as to how they died. However, with the two kings standing right there, this was an absolute confirmation that there was total victory over Midian. The kings had been spared for this very purpose. And more, he turns these leaders' words right back on their own heads. Verse 15 continues, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand? Lemor, hakaf zevach ve'zalmunna ata be'yadcha? To say, the palm Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand? In verse 6, using a singular verb indicating unanimity of speech, the leaders of Sukkot said, The palm, Ziba, and Zalmunna, now in your hand? Gideon reminds them of their words, repeating them back to the men. It is a letter-for-letter letter response. And he continues, verse 15 going on, That we should give bread to your weary men. Ki la'an hayefim lahem. For giving to your men, the wearied, bread. 
Gideon does a masterful change up in their words. They said, for giving to your army bread. Now he says, for giving to your men, the wearied bread. Gideon had first said to them, for wearied they and I, I pursuing after Ziba and Zamuna, kings Midian. The leaders had responded essentially saying, why would we give your puny army bread when you are pursuing a massive force of Midianites? Here he uses the same word for wearied, noting that they were in fact wearied, and yet they prevailed over the massive force of Midian and the palm, the authority that they possessed of Ziba and Zalmunna, it was now in his hand, meaning under his authority. As this was so, it is certain that a little city could not stand against him. Verse 16, and he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Sukkot. And took elders the city and thorns the wilderness and the flails, and knowing in them men Sukkot. This is just what he promised to do to them. He said he would, and thresh your flesh with thorns, the wilderness, and with the flails. The meaning is that using briars and flails, he threshed the flesh of the elders. By this, the men of Sukkot as a whole were instructed in what the punishment for cowardice was. In this verse is the second and last use of barkanim, meaning flails, in Scripture. What this seems to mean is that they completely covered the elders with thorns of the wilderness and then repeatedly hit them with the flails, thus threshing their flesh in the process. It would have been an exceedingly painful lesson, stingy hot and ouchy. As a side note, some commentators think there is an error in the text. Instead of the word yada, to know, they think it should read threshed. The two are very close in spelling if structured in a particular way. And knowing ve'yada or and threshed ve'yadesh. Some manuscripts agree with this, but the change is unnecessary. The elders were punished and the rest of the men of the city learned the penalty for being cowards. Gideon next moves on to another spineless group of people. Verse 17, then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. And Tower Penuel tore down and killed men the city. In verse 9, Gideon promised to come back and tear down the Tower of Penuel. Nothing was said of killing the men of the city. And so it may have been that in tearing down the tower, the men were killed. They fled there for refuge, and in its collapse, those inside were crushed with it. That's just a guess. The location of the city was strategically important enough that later, in the time of King Jeroboam, it was built again. That's found in 1 Kings 12. Next, with his promise to the lily-livered inhabitants fulfilled, Gideon will return his hand of justice upon those who had so severely afflicted Israel. Verse 18, and he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? The words are curious. Vayomer el zevach ve'el tzamuna epo ha'anashim asher haragtem betavor. And said unto Ziba and unto Zalmuna, Where here the men whom you killed in Tabor? First, there is no antecedent to what is said. Neither Tabor nor the killing of these men has been mentioned during the account of Gideon. The last time Tabor was noted was in the Battle of Judges chapter 4, where it was called Mount Tabor. Second, Gideon uses a rare word, efo. It comes from I, 
where and pull here. Thus, it literally means where here. It is always translated elsewhere as the word where. However, he may be using it as a general interrogative concerning a particular aspect of the men. If so, a similar combination in English might be what about? We'd say something like that. If it means only where, then it may be a taunt to the kings. Where the men you killed in Tabor? He's taunting them. Something similar would then be the taunting of the Rabshacheh who stood at the walls of Jerusalem from Isaiah 36. Beware lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered its land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Indeed, have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? He's standing there taunting the people of Jerusalem. Tabor comes from barar, to purify. It means purity or purified. Verse 18 continues. So they answered, as you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Vayomru kamocha chemohem echad ketoar b'neha melech. And said, according to you, according to them, one, according to form, sons the king. Without hearing the intonation of their voices, it's hard to be dogmatic concerning their intent. If Gideon was taunting them in the previous clause, which seems likely, then they are either trying to pacify him through flattery, acknowledging his princely state, or they are returning a taunt, as in, they were all like the king's sons, but now they're all dead. Either way, it is of note that they use the term, the king, when there was no king in Israel. One would think that they would just say, a king. Next, Gideon's response seals their fate. Verse 19, then he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. The words are filled with life and force. Vayomar achai b'nei mi hem, chai Yehovah, lu hachayetem otam, lo haragti et chem, and said, my brothers, sons, my mother, them, life Yehovah, would you lived them, not I killed you. Not only were they sons of his father, but they were sons of the same mother. Thus, they had the closest bond of all between them. As Gideon is the nearest blood relative, from a legal sense, it was his duty to execute these kings. However, he defers to his son to accomplish the deed. Thus, it would be a demeaning act added to their demise. Verse 20, and he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise, kill them. Gideon speaks with imperatives. Vayomer leyeter bekoro kum harog otam. And said to Jether, his firstborn, arise, kill them. Deferring to his young son to accomplish the task would be considered a disgraceful death for these kings, almost comparable to having a woman kill them. It would also be instructional for the son, as well as a mark of prestige that he could carry with him later in life, being the one who finished off these great kings. As for the name Jether, it comes from Yatar, to remain, make plenteous, preserve, etc. It can mean preeminence, excellence, abundance, remnant, preserved, and so forth. Verse 20 continues, But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. Velo shalaf ha na'ar harvo, ki yare, ki odenu na'ar, 
and no drew the youth his sword for afraid, for he still youth. Despite being granted the honor of the kill, he was still young and fearful about such an act. Thus, he would have to learn through sight rather than action. Verse 21, so Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. The word said is singular, and the kings use their own imperatives. Vayomer zevach vetzalmuna kum ata ufka banu ki kaish gevurato. And said Ziba and Zamuna, Arise, you, and impinge in us. For according to the man, his strength. These two know that they are goners. If Gideon pressed the boy, insisting that he kill them, it wouldn't simply be a disgrace. It is painfully evident that Jether had never done such a thing. Therefore, it would also be evidently painful for them that he had learned to kill through them. Therefore, they taunt Gideon into dispatching them into the pit. Therefore, verse 21 continues, so Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna. Hooray! Vayakum Gidon vayaharog et zevach ve'et Zalmunna. And rises Gideon and kills Ziba and Zalmunna. With a little taunting to spur him on, Gideon determines not to press the child, but to give the men what they asked for. Once the job was finished, it says, verse 21 finishes with, and took the crescent ornaments that were on the camel's necks, Vayikach et ha saharonim be gemalehem, and takes the round ornaments which in necks their camels. Here is a new and rare word, saharon. It is a round ornament coming from the noun sahar, meaning roundness. The word crescent has to be inferred, something that may or may not be the case. Some tie it to the Arabic moon god Sahar, but that still would signify roundness because many translations say crescent and because it can be tied to the moon, an attempt to align this with the Islamic crescent is made. The decorations on camel's necks both go all the way around the neck and at times hang like crescents. I went and looked at pictures of camels all over the Mideast just to check. They go around the neck in a circular fashion. They hang under the neck as crescents, whatever. There's all kinds of them. You get over in India and they just dress them up like the, uh, you know, the craziest things. It's unbelievable how they treat their camels. But there you go. The reason for taking the ornaments is to be found in verse 26, where it is noted that these are gold, ornaments fitting for the donkeys of kings. Let us rejoice in God. We are no longer defiled. We have come to the one who purifies us. We were objects of his wrath, but upon us, he has now smiled. He is our Lord. He is our God. He is Jesus. We missed him on the first time around. Since then, we have remained defiled. Upon us, his wrath grew hot. It did abound. But finally, upon us, he has smiled. Our circumcision is not just in the flesh, but in the heart. We have accepted the gospel, entering new life. Today, we have made a glorious new start. We have reconciliation after many years of strife. Our second thought today is pictures of Christ. Judges 8, and this is going to be a little confusing unless you get typology. I just want to let you know that in advance. You have to read through it a couple times maybe, but you'll get it. Uh, the main thing I asked you last week was to remember two names and what they signify. Anybody remember who I said? Zeba and Zalmuna, okay? One is uh, sacrifice, the other is moving image. If you can figure that out, it all pretty much makes sense. 
Judges 8 began with Ephraim angrily arguing with Gideon for not having been consulted concerning the battle against Midian. Ephraim means twice fruitful and ashes. As has been seen, he refers to the effect of the work of Christ among both Jews and Gentiles. However, Gideon, the gospel, had not called them for the initial battle against Midian, which is the place of judgment signifying the tribulation period. This was upsetting to them. To appease them, verse 2, he reminded them that their gleaning of grapes, meaning the harvest of judgment, was better than the vintage of Abiezer, meaning father of help. In validation of this, he referred to the fact that God gave into their hand Oreb and Zeb. That's verse 3. Remember, in chapter 7, there was a reference to those who tried to obtain the pledge of the Spirit without Christ and those who devour the flock. These were able to overcome through their faith in Christ, just as Revelation says will happen. Gideon essentially said to them, I, the gospel, led the original charge of the battle against Midian, the first passing through of the vineyard. But you, you captured and beheaded the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, meaning the gleaning of grapes. You then pursued the battle even as far as Midian itself. What did I do in comparison to you? It is a way of saying that just because the gospel goes forth, it does not necessarily save everyone who hears it. Rather, only those who appropriate it by faith are saved. Anybody that thinks that you can be saved by observance to the law of Moses is not thinking the Bible through clearly. They're not thinking through the relationship that they have with Jesus clearly. Everybody see that? The father of help, the giving of the spirit accompanied by the gospel is only effective for people when it is combined with their faith. It is a confirmation of the doctrine known as synergism. God does his part but he does not force salvation on man. That would be monergism. Rather, man must do his part by accepting Jesus and his work by faith. With that, Ephraim was content and, it says, relaxed their spirit. This introductory account was given to clear up several points of theology that people still do not properly grasp. Verse 4 noted that Gideon and the 300 with him came to the Jordan, meaning the descender. As was seen, 300 is a multiple of 3 and 10. 3 signifies divine perfection. 10 signifies that nothing is wanting and the whole cycle is complete. But more, as noted, Bullinger says of 3, the number 3 therefore must be taken as the number of divine fullness. It signifies and represents the Holy Spirit as taking of the things of Christ and making them real and solid in our experience. It is only by the Spirit that we realize spiritual things. Without Him and His gracious operation, all is surface work. All is what a plain figure is to a solid. The numbers perfectly fit with what one would expect in the final spiritual battle being played out during the tribulation period. Further, as has been seen, the Greek letter tau, a cross, represents the number 300. It is a clear note that Christ's cross, which is the basis of the gospel, is what is being pictured here. From it comes salvation and prevailing over the place of judgment. The gospel, Gideon, and the 300, meaning the cross, Christ's work, cross the descender, meaning Christ, and arrive at Sukkot, tabernacles. This would reflect the state of Israel on the other side of the Jordan that had not yet converted as a nation. Sukkot reflects their state as individuals. The tent refers to the human in his physical body. 
This is explicitly stated by both Peter and Paul in the New Testament. Peter says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, tabernacle, Sukkot, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. At Sukkot, verse 5, Gideon asked for circles of bread. The elders and leaders deny his request. They are not willing to accept the gospel's power to deliver them from Midian, the tribulation, by assisting in its propagation. Keep thinking of Israel. We don't want the gospel. That's not going to help us out of this. This in spite of Gideon's claim that he is pursuing Zeba and Salmuna, sacrifice and moving image. The names are referring to the law of Moses. Sacrifice is the Levitical sacrificial system set up for atonement. Moving image is an exact description of the rites of the tabernacle, the temple, under the law. The modern Hebrew New Testament confirms the use of the words below. For the law having a shadow, tzel, of the good things to come, and not the very image, tzelem, moving image, of the things can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, making those who approach perfect. And then from Hebrews 10, it says, and every priest stands ministering daily. That's the law, the moving image. They are moving in an image of Jesus and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. He's not moving. He has completed his work at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. These two, Ziba and Zalmunna, are called kings of Midian. That is exactly what they will be in Israel. The reestablished law will be ruled during the tribulation period by the sacrificial and temple system. Now, this isn't something I made up. This is something that scholars have said for eons that this is coming, that there will be a reestablished Israel, that someday they will have a peace treaty with the enemy, they will have a temple, they will have a sacrificial system. If you don't believe it, they're putting it together right now. Everything is ready to be built when this agreement with the Antichrist is signed. This is not made up by Charlie Garrett. This is simply pictures that match what people have known for eons. Remember that the word Selem means that the tabernacle and temple were only shadows of the coming Christ, who is the very image, Tselem, of the invisible God. That's from Colossians 1.15 and the modern Hebrew New Testament. Israel rejected his coming. They removed themselves from fellowship with the Lord. They were exiled and will suffer through the tribulation. The leaders of Sukkot, picturing the leaders of those in Israel dwelling in their human tents, turned Gideon, meaning the gospel, down. The palm, the possession of Zeba and Zalmunna, now in your hand, under your authority? They refused the message of Christ and failed to assist in the presentation of the gospel. Exactly what's going to happen in Israel. Because of their refusal, Gideon says in verse 7 that they will be punished, carefully describing what the punishment would be. He then, in verse 8, ascended to Penuel, turned to God, and they answer similarly. There is a refusal to turn to God through the gospel. 
even while Midian, the tribulation period continues to exist. With that, verse 9, Gideon promises that when he comes back in peace, he will tear down their tower. The tower, Migdal, comes from Gadal, a verb that gives a sense of advancing, growing, boasting, magnifying, and so forth. Israel will continue boasting in their state under the law, stubbornly refusing to acknowledge the gospel as long as their tower, the temple and its rites, are there for them to revel in. Verse 10 noted that Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, destruction, with their army of 15,000 of the Bnei Kedem, or Sons East. They anticipate those who continue to cling to the law, annulled in the past through the work of Jesus Christ, simply because they cannot let go of it. If you don't believe that's going on today, check my inbox. How many people email me telling me I'm a heretic because I don't observe the law of Moses? And this is just people that attend the church, much less Israel, right? A full description of such people is carefully detailed in the book of Hebrews. The name Karkor. Parkour in Hebrew, Q and Q instead of K and K, where Midian is encamped, gives an ominous foreboding of their demise. The name is identical to the word used in Numbers 24:17, where it said this, I see him now, but not near. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy Karkar, all the sons of tumult. The number of Midianites, 15,000 is a multiple of 15 and 10. 15 was explained by Bollinger as acts wrought by the energy of divine grace. 10 signifies, as we've seen a million times, completeness of order, marking the entire round of anything. It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. It would be hard to find a better description of Israel's future meeting with God in Christ when the gospel finally prevails than what I just described in those numbers. Still in verse 10, it noted that these 15,000 were all that was left of the original 120,000 men who drew the sword. This is a multiple of 120 and tens. Bullinger says 120 is made up of three forties. Three times 40 equals 120. Applied to time, therefore, it signifies a divinely appointed period of probation. In Daniel 9, Israel was given a divinely appointed period of probation under the law. The final seven years of that appointed time encompasses the tribulation period. When that entire round is complete, the time will be ended. It is at this time that Gideon, the gospel, went up by the road of those who dwell in tents on the east of Noba and Jogbeha. The east speaks of a foretime, the past. Noba means barking, and Jogbeha means lofty. They speak of the state of the people. Dogs bark. It is equating Israel to Gentiles. Boy, they wouldn't like to hear that, I'll tell you. Those under the law exalt themselves. Israel is being shown its true state before the Lord while under the law. However, the gospel will prevail in the battle, as it said of Gideon, and struck the camp, and the camp was confidence. There is Israel, sitting in confidence, smug, and barking as they enter the tribulation, represented by the Midianites, the place of judgment. But Jesus and Paul both showed that the Antichrist is coming and that the temple will be defiled by his presence. Israel's confidence will be shattered and they will almost be brought to an end. Verse 12 says that at that time, Zeba and Zalmunna fled. It is exactly described by Daniel in Daniel 9:27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. 
but in the middle of the week, the seven years of tribulation, he shall bring an end, Zeba, to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing, Zalmunna of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. We have a picture of Zeba and Zalmunna right there in Daniel 9. Jesus explains the wing metaphor. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, right in the temple, moving image, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The gospel will not prevail until Israel realizes that they have put their eggs in the wrong basket. That won't happen until after the Antichrist has done his evil work. Sacrifice and temple worship will flee be brought to an end and be captured. With that understood, verse 13 says that Gideon, Cutter, meaning the gospel, the son of Joash, Jehovah has bestowed, returned from battle from ascent to the sun. As noted, the wording appears to be a purposeful way of avoiding saying the words from the east. In other words, that would have marred the typology. Therefore, a different way of describing the same thing was employed. The gospel is from earlier times in Israel's history, but it will only be understood by Israel in the future. Using the full name, Gideon, son of Joash, at this time signifies the victory of the gospel that was introduced at the beginning of the narrative. The wording, when considered, is rather incredible. Verse 14 told of taking the young men of Sukkot and inquiring of him. In turn, he wrote down the names of the 77 leaders and elders of Sukkot. 77 is a multiple of 11, disorder, disorganization, imperfection, and disintegration, and the number seven, spiritual perfection. They represent the chaotic state of Israel before coming to Christ, mixed with the spiritually perfect completion of their state. In other words, it marks the spiritual fullness of Israel's rebellion against the gospel. The time has come for the rule of law to end. As seen earlier, being in Sukkot, Tabernacles signifies their state in humanity. Gideon presented the ending of sacrifice and temple worship to them. They wouldn't give the gospel a moment of consideration through all of the times of wearied toil under the law. Therefore, he inflicts upon them their punishment that was promised, threshing them with thorns and flails. It is not unlike what happened to Jesus. In Matthew 27:29, a crown of thorns was placed on his head. Only after that, in Matthew 27, 30, did they strike him on the head with a reed? Now imagine the pain of that happening. Thus his flesh was threshed in a similar way, meaning with thorns and rods. It next says in verse 17 that he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. The place of confident boasting representing the law is to be torn down and those who adamantly adhere to it will be killed. Once again, people that think you can be saved by law observance are not paying attention. Okay, that doesn't mean they're not saved, but it means they do not understand what the word grace means and what the law means, and they need to come to that understanding. Jesus, I'm talking about people that are saved that just think, oh, anybody can be saved anyway. It's not possible. You are either saved through grace or you are out. Jesus alludes to this in the book of Luke, Luke 19, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And a few verses later, it says, but bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. 
After this, verse 18, Gideon mockingly addresses Ziba and Zalmunna about the men who they killed at Tabor, meaning purified, coming from the word barar, to purify. It speaks of those who came to God through Christ during the tribulation period. Daniel 12, referring to this time, says these words, Many shall be purified, barar, which is the root of the word tabor, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand but the wise shall understand. Their mocking but surprising response to him was, one according to form, sons, the king. As there was no king in Israel at the time, the words are certainly given prophetically concerning those who will accept the gospel in the future. They are all likened to sons of the king, Jesus. It refers to the sonship of those in Jesus Christ. To confirm this, Gideon's, meaning the gospel's response was, my brothers, sons, my mother, them. Each person saved by the gospel is a brother within the framework of the gospel. Their one mother is defined in Galatians 4.26, where Paul writes, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. It's all being pictured right here in this passage right now. Those under the law are in bondage and they are at enmity with God. Those in Christ are free and sons of the king and brothers within the gospel. Because the law caused the death of these brothers, the law must be ended. The introduction of Jether, verse 21, is brilliant. The firstborn of the gospel refers to the Jews who accepted the gospel first. The name has various meanings, such as preeminence, excellence, abundance, remnant, preserved, etc. Each is a reflection of their state. What does it say about the firstborn? He did not draw his sword, for he was afraid. It is the godly fear of one who possesses the grace of God mixed with a refusal to rely on the law, the sword, the chereb, the same word as horeb, where the law came from, to slay the enemy. That task is left to Gideon, the gospel to accomplish. Israel will learn that for each Jew who is saved, it is Christ's work alone reflected in the gospel that prevails over the law. Therefore, Gideon dispatched the law the sacrifice and temple worship pictured by Zeba, sacrifice, and Zalmunna, moving image. Finally, the passage ended with Gideon removing the round ornaments off of the camel's necks. As seen in chapter 7, camel comes from the verb gamal, to deal fully or adequately with. Thus, it can mean to wean, repay, require, reward, ripen, and so forth. The time of the law, clearly outlined in Daniel chapter 9, is fully ripened and its end is come. It has been fully cameled out, in other words. Therefore, its ornamentation is stripped from its neck, the tsavar, a word that comes from tsur, meaning to confine, bind, besiege, etc. The binding of the law for Israel will be ended with the acceptance of the gospel. Great stuff lies ahead. It takes me right back to Joshua chapter 3 and 4, where Israel went through the Jordan and they accepted Christ and were saved as a nation. It's all making a different picture of the exact same event coming. That's how important Israel is to God. That's how important he is. And yet churches all over the world dismiss Israel as an aberration in the world today. They are key and fundamental to the promises of God in Christ. Thus, with Israel's acceptance, the battle is complete. The law is ended and its burden is removed. Remember, Gideon anticipates the gospel message from 1 Corinthians 15, 1, 3, and 4. I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, 
that Christ died for our sins. Christ. It's not just an ethereal thing. It is a real human being that's being spoken of here according to the scriptures and that he was buried. Christ is the gospel and the gospel is Christ in the sense that he is the one that made it possible. He was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. He, meaning his work, which defines him as the Messiah, is the gospel. The story of Gideon's battle in Judges 8 is a marvelous tapestry detailing how it will someday change the status of Israel from being an enemy of the Lord to again being his people in the fullest sense of the word. As noted at the beginning of the sermon, what is going to be played out in the world in a literal sense of events as described in Revelation are all a part of the underlying spiritual message of Israel's reconciliation with God through Jesus. Now, the whole world is going to be judged because the whole world is being filled with wickedness. Israel is right along with them. But the important part of this is God's covenant to his people, which preceded the coming of the Messiah in which he will not break. They must come to Messiah for him to annul that covenant in them. They are bound to it and they will be under it until this happens, all pictured right here. The message is inclusive of Gentiles who will be saved. We know that from Revelation. But the overarching goal of the tribulation is to bring about the promises of wholeness and fellowship with God that the Old Testament promises to Israel as a nation during the millennium. It is an incredible witness to the faithfulness of God to uphold his word even beyond any measure that we can hope to understand. It is so hard to grasp that a large portion of those in the church simply reject the notion of God having any future purpose for Israel at all. Likewise, a large portion of the church continues to believe that even if Jesus saved them, they must still perform works in order to keep their salvation. Most simply don't understand what the word grace means. Five letters that are so hard for us as human beings to grasp. And they cannot trust that God is eternally faithful to the commitments that he makes, be it Israel or be it you. Don't be like these faithless souls. Your rewards are holy, 100%, wholly tied up in one word, faith. That's it. Whatever you do in faith will be rewarded. Anything you do apart from faith is sin. Paul says that explicitly, and it will be a loss of rewards to you. The word is written. Have faith that everything it proclaims will come to pass, just as it is written. What a wonderful word we have been given. What a wonderful God we serve that would save a person like Charlie Garrett and that would continue to save a rebellious nation like Israel because he said he would. Because his word is spoken and it is written down for us to read and to understand. And yet we can't seem to get it. None of us. We all just, at one time or another, we think, oh man, God really doesn't like me anymore. He loves you infinitely. And because of you being in Christ, he has saved you eternally. It's done. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. I just gave you the gospel. Here it is. If you believe this, you will be saved right here. I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's what God wants you to do is accept that simple premise. The whole Bible is centered on that thought. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What a great God. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Please, if you've never called on him, make it today. We're talking... Earlier, Jose up here talking about carrying a, a coffin 
out to evangelize people. And a guy with horns comes up. And he's scared. He says, that's a little bit frightening there. This guy's got horns on, and he's like, what are you talking about? We're all going to go to that box. I mean, that's the point of him taking it out there. You're all, every one of us is going to go into a box unless the Lord comes first. And I'm out here on the streets to tell you this. And that money didn't just come out of the sky. He had to earn it. $600 to buy a coffin just to make a point to people about their need for Jesus. All right? I mean, it makes complete sense. And what had happened? An entire gang shows up and throws all of their weapons and all of their their drugs and everything into the coffin and walked away weeping, having come to Christ. Isn't that amazing? It's just a simple display, and yet it happened. It's wonderful. If you haven't seen Jose's opening comments, what's today? Uh, uh, 3 March. Go watch him. Opening comments, 3 March. He does a great job of telling you about the simple life that he lives, telling people about Jesus, him and his crew, the Jesus crew. They go out and they tell people, and they use examples that people can understand. This is what we all should be doing. Telling people about Jesus. The track rack, got a new one. Got a new one right on the wall from Ron. Thank him when he comes and take some of those and hand them out today, okay? Our closing verse. Psalm 83, 11 and 12. Make their nobles like Oreb and like Zeb. Yes, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us take for ourselves the pastures of God for a possession. What do you think those guys were doing? They were law-observing in typology. They are the law. They are the sacrifice. They are the temple. And they want the pastures of God for a possession. And the psalmist says, no, I want the grace of Jesus Christ as my possession because that is God's promised rest. I mean, you look at the psalm after hearing this and you understand what the psalmist is saying because God is inspiring the psalmist, whether he realized it or not. Next week, Judges 8, 22 through 35. It's great and so fun. What a story to tell. So shout out, amen. It's entitled Gideon, Judge of Israel. Part 10. Thank you, Jay. That'll be our 27 Judges sermon. Woohoo! Great stuff. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who judges his people according to their deeds. So follow him, live for him, and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? All right, now I got something from Bob in Maryland. Bob is a great guy. He helps me with something every single day of my life, and uh, he sent down something, uh, and he said, please give this to the church. So here's what I got. I got a pair of tongs for you, okay? You can pick some. This is so you don't burn your fingers, okay? When you pick up that lid, it is hot, so use your tongs, okay? Then you've got a incense burner, Okay, now it's got one of those crazy things, the Greeks and, uh, you know, the swinging thing. Just tear that off and you just set it down on your table, okay? What I recommend, because they do get ashes occasionally, I always keep mine on a plate, okay? So I got a plate and I got my incense burner. Okay, so you got, that's number two. Then you got number three, which is coals. And they're kind of fun. They got a little, they're, they're cup shaped on one side. So you put the flat side down and you put the cup shape up. So you put the incense into the dip so it stays there because you put it with the flat side it just rolls right off okay I, it's kind of rounded it's not even flat it's kind of rounded so it'll roll right off so cup side up put the incense into that and then you take the lighter and you light it and you'll see just a little flame coming off of it 
Well, that's like, it, it just, it's got some stuff in there to get the coal going. And what I do is I light it on this side and on this side so that I make sure that it's going to burn all the way through. Because sometimes it doesn't. You get half of a burn and that's no good. Uh, and then, real frankincense from Somalia, okay? This is um, very hard to cultivate, actually. It comes from the gum of a tree. that they, they cut the tree and out comes this sap. And then they cultivate this and it burns. Okay, so this is right out of the Bible. This isn't some freaky Eastern crazy thing, okay? Um, my house, I tell people at Bible class, my house is so full of smoke every night that you got to have a machete to cut through the smoke. It's great. We do this every night during dinner and watching a little something with Hedico. Um She's, she's laughing because she knows it's true. Okay, so this is, if you get today's question which is very easy. I, this, is, this is one of, I'm sure this is one of your questions. This is so easy that if you don't raise your hand, not only are you not going to get the, the, this, you're going to get expelled for a week. Okay. But come anyway. Okay. This is very easy. Have your hand ready. Okay. What book of the Bible has the same number of chapters as there are books in... She's already got her hand up. Isaiah. Isaiah. I didn't even finish the question. 66 books, 66 chapters. Absolutely. And each book has a little pattern in there. I think some of them are stretched by people, but you will see patterns in there. Here's one from Isaiah to help you out. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says... Um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, help me out here. John the Baptist, behold my servant. Um, uh, let me read it to you. Isaiah 40, verse 3. Uh, I want to read it to you correctly so that you can see exactly this pattern. It's marvelous. This is a marvelous pattern, and Isaiah does this. Isaiah 40. Hang on. I know I'm getting long here, but it's worth it. Because the Bible's filled with these. This isn't anything that's like chance. There's thousands of these in the Bible. Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert, a highway for our God. That's Isaiah 40, verse 3. What is the 40th book of the Bible? Matthew. That's right. So you go to Matthew, and you go to chapter 3. So you've got 43 and 43, and you go to Matthew 3, 43. In verse 3, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. You see these patterns all over in Scripture. It's not by random chance. I mean, I could see one, but not thousands. This book is unbelievable in what it contains, okay? So, you get this. I hope you enjoy it. Don't throw it away. If you don't like incense and you say, I just can't stand this stuff, which would really upset me, but um, I, I would say find somebody that wants it, okay? I know somebody that really wants it, was salivating, said, I want to win today, but I'm not going to say who it was, Burke. Um, whoops. Um, okay, so um, we got a poem, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. Thank you. Um, this is entitled, Gideon, Judge of Israel, Part 9. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle, from the ascent of Harris, where the swords did rattle. And he caught a young man of the men of Sukkot and interrogated him right there and then. And he wrote down for him the leaders of Sukkot and its elders, 77 men. Then he came to the men of Sukkot and said, Here are Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me back then saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city, and thorns of the wilderness, and briars. This wasn't going to be pretty. And with them he taught the men of Sukkot. Then he tore down a tower of Penuel, and killed the men of the city. And he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, as you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Good tales of lore. 
Then he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. Yes, it's true. As the Lord lives, if you would let them live, I would not kill you. And he said to Jethro's firstborn, rise, kill them. The order was not uncouth, but the youth would not draw his sword for he was afraid because he was still a youth. So Ziba and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and kill us. For as a man is, so is his strength. Got it, Tex? So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on the camel's necks. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us your path you have shown. Hallelujah, we shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, how good you are to us. How good you are to us to give us these types and shadows way, way, way in advance and then to reveal them to us in the writing of the New Testament so we know exactly what is coming in many instances. We know that Israel has a future. We know that you are faithful to them and therefore we can know that you are faithful to us. Oh, unfaithful us. Thank you. Thank you, oh God, that you will not reject us even when we do so many things that are awry when we have come to Christ. Thank you for Jesus who has redeemed us and continues to save us into eternity. Thank you. And it's in his beautiful name we pray.